Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yesterday morning, I was at Severna Park Middle School for Anne Arundel County's uh, Public Schools Regional History Day. There's this National History Day competition. I don't know if, Grace, you've had to do that yet, but that may be coming, uh, where you have to prepare a project uh, for history. I was in the, uh, the junior group documentary section. I was a judge for the eighth graders making their documentaries. And uh, one of the things that's most important in history that the students are taught uh, is the importance of primary sources. So a primary source is something that uh, is actually a product of a, an historical event. So we had this one uh, documentary about 9-11, but the students hadn't talked to anybody who was there, which is kind of weird because you can't swing a cat in this county without hitting somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who was at the Pentagon or, or at some other installation where they had to, to do something uh, unusual in light of the security situation. So, so they did not advance to the state level because they didn't really have any primary sources. Another group that didn't advance uh, because they didn't have primary sources was uh, a trio of guys who decided they wanted to do their project on the extinction of the dinosaurs. Obviously, there are no dinosaurs available to interview uh, or contemporaneous accounts of the dinosaur extinction. So uh, they said they wanted to pick a, a project where they wouldn't have primary sources, which doesn't make sense because 20% of the of the score has to do with you doing what you're told to do, so they did not admit it. Uh, but uh, one of the things that, that we found was that, uh, that the students who used primary sources very well uh, were the ones who, who had thought through what they were doing, and the ones who, who ended up doing well in, in the competition. Because when you're trying to tell a story, and when you're trying to do history, you have a lot more credibility if you are using primary sources. So last week, when I was talking about the resurrection, what Paul says about the resurrection of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, I, I kind of deliberately left that a little bit unsatisfying. Because Paul goes on in chapter 15, verses 12 to 20, about how if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, well then, what we're doing is pointless. Our, our faith is futile. Those who have died in Christ are, are lost forever. And, and uh, Paul says, but, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of them that sleep. And so you might want to ask, well, Paul, where do you get off saying that? Well, here is where he gets off saying that. If you remember what he said in the first part, of 1 Corinthians 15, when he says, after he says, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then at this point, Paul departs from that, that ancient kernel of the confession of the faith to give us some primary sources. He says he appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to the twelve, and after he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one untimely born. See, what Paul is saying here is 
Jesus appeared to all of these people, most of whom are still around, if you want to check out my story. He appeared to 500 people at one time, and that was about 20 years ago, and some of those folks have died, but, but the other ones are still around. You can ask him. You don't have to take my word for it. In the Gospels, we have much the same phenomenon, where in, in all of the Gospels, we have an empty tomb. At the end of Matthew, at the end of Mark, at the end of Luke, at the end of John, the tomb in which Jesus, having been fully and truly dead, was laid, was empty. He was not there anymore, just as he had said. And in all of the Gospel accounts, you get this sense of confusion, a sense of, well, how is that? And the, the, the very first of the apostles, by the way, an apostle is someone who has seen the risen Christ and is sent to tell the good news uh, of, of his resurrection. Uh, those first apostles were the women there in the garden who came to look for him and came to, to uh, anoint his body and then found out he wasn't there. And so when they went and told the, the disciples that, that the tomb was empty, everybody was confused. Nobody expected that. And why did nobody expect that? Again, as I said last week, because people know, 2,000 years ago, that dead things stay dead. We moderns have a great deal more scientific knowledge and medical understanding than people did 2,000 years ago. But if you, if you were to go to Paul and say, well, Paul, I know you think Jesus rose from the dead, but now that we've gotten past all of the superstition of your era, and we know things better, now we can tell you, Paul, that you must be mistaken, that he didn't really rise from the dead. And Paul would say to you, what kind of fool do you think I am? This is the first century. Of course we know that things that die stay dead. That's the way it works. If you think about the, the, the history of, of, of the human race, I mean, one of the things we had to figure out right away, that, that when, when the body dies, you have to bury it or, or burn it. Otherwise, some really bad things will happen. And, yeah, we know. We know that resurrection makes no sense. The idea that somebody would come back from the dead. That doesn't seem to fit with everything that we know. And yet, our confession is that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of them that sleep. Now, as I said a couple of weeks ago, this is not out of keeping with the understanding of the future eschatology, if you want a fancy word, that was held by a great many Jews of the era. If you go to a synagogue, you will hear recited the Shimone Esther, the 18 benedictions, one of which is, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who raises the dead. That goes back, probably at the very least, to the first century, and quite possibly a century or two before that. So in the temple service in Jerusalem, when Jesus and his disciples were worshiping, they would have said these words, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, who raises the dead. Our, our, some of our more progressive Jewish friends have, have a hard time putting that in the prayer, so they translate it to who, the one who brings life, or, or brings life out of nothing. But in the, in the Hebrews, who, who raises the dead. 
And this is indeed our testimony as Christians, that since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. If this isn't true, then Paul is absolutely right in verse 32, which I think we skipped over, to say that if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. An Epicurean slogan or maybe a satire of it, but the idea is, well, you know, if this is it, then this is it. But, Paul says, this is not it. Now, he notes, in verse, uh, starting in verse 35, of course, the people who insist that there is no resurrection of the dead, because everybody knows that doesn't happen, those people aren't going to go away quietly just because you say Jesus was raised from the dead, just because you say you have all these primary sources, all these witnesses, they're going to they're going to say, well, that, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, how, how can it be that, a, that a, 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 a dead body is going to come to, to life? Again, what kind of body is a resurrection body going to be? Well, that's dumb, Paul says. As is so often the case, Paul notes, people are raising objections not because they have a legitimate intellectual objection. They're just trying to, to throw up smoke. It's like, no, that's, that's a completely irrelevant question. The fact is, as you know, what you sow doesn't come to life until it dies. When you, when you sow, you don't plant the body that will be. You plant a seed, maybe of wheat or, or something else. But God gives it a body as he's determined. And each type of seed, he gives its own body. I know a number of people in here cook. I enjoyed your soup, Franny, and I enjoyed yours, Carrie. Do you know what, what relationship does coriander have to cilantro? The spice coriander and the herb cilantro. Does anybody know? Exactly. Coriander is the seed, and if you put the coriander in the ground, it grows up and it becomes cilantro. You use the two in completely different ways. Coriander is 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 used in in like pickling, in, in uh, some things that would maybe even some, some sweet savory things. But but cilantro, that's the stuff you, you put in, in salsa, right? You, you, they, they're not only do they taste completely different, they function in different ways in the kitchen, but they're the same animal. The same plant. <laughs> Likewise, Paul says, when you when you plant a, a, a seed of of wheat, a grain of wheat, it doesn't look like the, the thing waving on the top of the stalk, but but that's what goes on the ground, and something else comes up. You put an acorn in, and an acorn doesn't look a thing like an oak, but it grows up, and it is the same thing. And so, likewise, Paul says, you have a body given to each, just as God has determined. And I think this is why, when in the resurrection accounts of the Gospels, when Jesus first appears to his disciples, they don't recognize him. Have you noticed that? They always are like, who's this guy? One point they think he's the gardener. Another one, he's this guy on the beach, and he's, and he's uh, broiling some, some fish for breakfast. And, uh, another one, he's a traveler on the road. I love that story in Luke's Gospel, where they're on the road to Emmaus. And, and you, know, you think about that. The disciples were hanging out with him all the time for a few years. Like They, they would have certainly known him well, and, and yet they could walk on the road with him for a long time and 
not having the idea. There, there's now after they realize it is Jesus, they're like, oh yeah, now I see that. Now I see. Now I see how the acorn oak thing works. But it's going to be different. Radically the same. It's the same way Paul says with the resurrection of the dead. The body that was sown is perishable, but it's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. Sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. And here I need you to pay attention because I have to explain something difficult. Our translations of that verse are, I think, singularly unhelpful in enabling us to understand what it is Paul had to say, especially because of the way that our thinking about humanity is influenced by Platonic philosophy. We, we often think, well, the, the real human being is a, is a soul, and the body is just kind of the, the meat suit that you hang around in for a while, and then once you die, then the soul goes on, and you know you die and go to heaven, and you have this this disembodied, ethereal existence. That that's not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about resurrection. It, it, to the degree that happens, that's an, an intermediate state before the resurrection of the dead. Now, what happens in resurrection? is that the body which was characterized by everything about our current mortal life, mortality, death, decay, corruption, the fact that it takes you time in the morning simply to be presentable to other human beings, that all of that is tied up with the, na the, the current nature of, of our fallen humanity. When, when Paul says that what is sown as naturally means what is sown as is mortal in that sense. But when he says it's raised a spiritual body, he doesn't doesn't mean that, that we at the resurrection we float around. That that was a, a an ancient heresy that, that had to get knocked down real quick called docetism. The idea that Jesus wasn't really human, he just seemed like it, that he didn't really leave any footprints. He kind of floated two inches off the ground. Uh, no, Jesus was and is fully human and, and resurrected in full glorified humanity. When he says that's a spiritual body, he means that is a that's a, a body, the resurrection body, is characterized by the life of the Holy Spirit, by the life of that which is perfect, that which is beautiful, that which was the original intention for what humanity was. And that's why it was written, Paul says, the first Adam became a living being, but the last Adam a life-giving spirit. Spiritual didn't come first, it was the natural, or the, the life of the spirit didn't come first, the mortal came first, but after that came the life of the spirit. And, he says, as was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, but as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we born the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. So Jesus in his resurrected life is the first of many brethren, as the writer of Hebrews says. What he experienced, having been raised by God through the power of the Spirit, is what we will one day experience as well. That is what the biblical authors are most interested in talking about. So when Paul says that flesh and blood cannot enter the Inherit the kingdom of God. He's again talking about this 
fallen, mortal flesh that we have now. But I'm going to tell you a mystery, Paul says. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. A flash, a twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. The state of death is sin, the power of sin is torrid. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we have to look forward to, my brothers and sisters. Not floating around on a cloud like in that far side cartoon where the guy's bored and he says, I wish I brought a magazine. <laughs> no, God doesn't <coughs> separate the material from the spiritual. He brings them together perfect. That's what we have to look forward to. And because of this, Paul says, in light of this fact, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to sit around and wait for it. We're just supposed to sit around and be comfortable, try not to get in too much trouble, maybe like not get arrested, and then it, it finally comes to sort it out and it will all be good. Is, is that what he says? That's not what he says. He says, therefore, in light of this glorious truth that we have a resurrected life to look forward to. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Our lives now anticipate the resurrection life that we will one day know in full. We get to start living according to having a hint, a foretaste of what that is through the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ working in us. That is the power by which we do all the things that God has called us to do. And to my mind, this is way better news than floating on a cloud wishing I brought a magazine.